camp meeting, sort of, the setting, anyway, uh, all year round. And uh, I love that part of it, especially the, uh, oh, what was it, seven and a half feet of snow we got in one snowstorm a couple winters ago. And uh, this last winter, I think it was, oh, maybe accumulated total of probably 21 feet uh, through the winter. And um, I love that. I grew up in Wisconsin and uh, grew up with the cold weather, and it was good. I enjoyed that. And so living in Tahoe is, is nice. Gets up to 84 degrees, and I'm just like, okay, cool down anytime now. Uh, swimming weather, 68 degrees, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, anyway. I moved to Tahoe and started working for the Nevada Utah Conference as a Bible worker at the Heavenly Valley Church. And um, it's such a privilege to be able to uh, begin my training for the pastoral ministry and at the same time get my feet wet, so to speak, in the ministry itself. And uh, I've had great mentorship, Pastor Gary Grady and now Pastor Ron Torkelson. They're both involved today with the youth across campus here. And um, I couldn't ask for much better mentors, I don't think. And I've enjoyed every aspect of the work. Um, The only thing that um, wears me down is the amount of work sometimes. But that's okay, too, I guess. It's good character development. Uh, this week, I, I want to open the Word with you and look at the story of Nehemiah. Um, before we begin, I'd like to have a word of prayer. And, and just please bring your Bibles with you every day. Um, we're going to be looking carefully at the story of Nehemiah. And it's perhaps a look at Nehemiah that could be new to you. Maybe maybe you've never considered the story this way before. And um, if that's the case, praise God. If if you have before, then I, I pray that this will be a, a renewal, uh, a, a uh, encouragement to revival in your own hearts and in my heart this week. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Lord, I thank you so much for uh, blessing us with this place Uh, this sanctuary out in the wilderness, um, in nature, surrounded by the trees and the the sunshiny sky and friends, the fellowship we get to enjoy. Most importantly, Lord, we appreciate the fact that this week we will focus especially on growing closer together with you. We pray that your spirit would guide our minds today as we open your word. Thank you for it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, There's a story of... mm, Her name is Rosalinda. Rosa was born into a terrible, terrible home environment. Um, No father figure because he... As soon as the mother was pregnant, the father disappeared. You've heard of stories like this before. You know somebody, perhaps, that has been in this situation. The dad disappeared. The father, I should say, disappeared and was not in the picture. No father figure example in this, in in Rosa's life. Excuse me. Her mother was a horrible example of motherhood. Um, She was into drugs. She was into screaming and yelling at her kids. She was just a horrible example of motherhood. And the worst abuse she uh, put on Rosa was the abuse of neglect. Constant neglect. Some Somebody in Rosa's life, a man, abused Rosa as a young, young 
three or four years old, um, sexually abused her. And as time progressed, there were three or four men in Rosa's life who abused her likewise. Okay? She, in fact... It was, in fact, so much a part of her life that she started acting this way around everybody. She was, you know, one of those little girls that was seven years old going on 27. I don't know. She was really strutting herself around, dressing provocatively for a seven-year-old. Um, later on in life, she, the more she acted that way, she ended up getting raped and pregnant due to the rape. Her mother, um, you know, the mother she was, I described to you, the mother encouraged her to to, uh, end the pregnancy, which she did. She had an abortion. Then it was hardly a year later, and she had a boyfriend who she got pregnant out of wedlock with, And uh, had that child, and the boyfriend disappeared, just like her father disappeared. Same story. It just, it's it's interesting how this kind of a sad, gloomy story can get. um, What's the word? Yeah, it just gets passed on and passed on, doesn't it? Her boyfriend disappeared, and so she and her mother who was, remember, a bad example of a mother, raised this child, are raising this child together. The the kicker of this story is that this last December, Rosa turned 13. I want to ask you, is it possible for Rosa to find healing in her life? Is it possible for her to have even a chance in this life? Amen. Absolutely there is a chance. But what are the chances? What is is up against this young lady? How broken is Rosa's life? How ruined and seemingly hopeless is Rosa's life. And how broken and ruined is that person's life that you can think of? You you know somebody like this. You know of people who have who've just blown it. Maybe even as an adult, they walked away from the truth they held dear as a young person. Maybe they, they have gone their own way. Maybe you have a child that's that's gone their own way and and it seems truly Hopeless. My friends, the story of Nehemiah, I submit to you, is the story of rebuilding. The story of reconstruction. The story, in fact, of revival. It applies to people like Rosa. It applies to people like you and me sitting right here today with an open Bible. This story is power-packed, and I'd like to take just a brief look at it this week because there's no way in the time that we have this week to really uh, dig deeply and, and see all that there is to see in this amazing story. Nehemiah, who, who, who was Nehemiah? <clears throat> Nehemiah was, say again? Yes. Um, pull out my notes here. Um, You've heard of the king Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes I was Nehemiah's boss. Do you know who Artaxerxes' father was? It was Xerxes. So Artaxerxes I, his father was Xerxes. And we know Xerxes also by the name Ahasuerus. Xerxes I was the same as Ahasuerus. And it just so happens that the wife of Ahasuerus was Queen Vashti. 
Do you remember who Queen Vashti was? She was the, the woman who stood up against her husband and made, made a real bad situation for all the, all the women across the country, uh, all the men, I should say, across the country, because now the fear was, oh, no, all the women are going to start standing up, right? And then Esther comes into the picture shortly after that. Okay, so Artaxerxes, that is Nehemiah's boss, was the stepson of Queen Esther. You got it? Isn't that, isn't that great? Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer, as we'll see at the end of chapter 1. And um, you know Nehemiah was no ordinary person. Just based, in, and this I did not read in the Bible. This is just my own speculation, okay? I'd like to share with you. My, I speculate that considering the position of Nehemiah, he must have been an extraordinary person. He had to have been. He couldn't have been like me. Okay? He was an extraordinary person. He, had, he must have had, he was working in the court of the king. He must have had military training. He must have had, you know, hand-to-hand combat training. That's what they did a lot of times with the people who worked in the king's court in those days. I'm assuming that he would, he would have been just like the rest of them in history that did that in the king's court. You see, the king's life was to be protected. And no matter who worked in his court was uh, serving that position, but also serving as a bodyguard, doubling as a bodyguard, you might say. And so Nehemiah's uh, got all the training that the other men have. And not only that, Nehemiah, considering the fact that he's the king's cupbearer, had to have had some serious psychological training. Why? Because the king would ask for a drink. Nehemiah was the one to go over, pick up the bottle, pour the drink, and take a sip before handing it to the king. This takes no ordinary person to to do such a thing. If there is death in the cup, whether Nehemiah knows it or not, especially when he doesn't know it, takes some real guts to take a sip because there's a whole lot of people that want that king dead. And Nehemiah knows it. For him to be able to take a drink day in and day out, knowing that at any time the next cup could hold death for him, he had to have some real psychological strength some, he was an extraordinary person. Most important aspect of Nehemiah is that he's a man. He is, I'm not talking about a male. He is a man. He is a godly man. And I'm saying he was a God-fearing man. He was a real man. And that's the most important aspect of Nehemiah. You wouldn't want to mess with Nehemiah. Okay, Um, he knew governmental law. He knew politics through and through. He knew all kinds of information. And this is just based on the story. This is stuff that's not written in the Bible. But based on the story in the Bible, we, we, we can assume safely that he knew plenty. He was an extraordinary person. Uh, can I have a couple of volunteers to help me here? I got just a, a a little handout. I'd like to pass around. One per person is just fine. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to go in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah. Chapter 1, and I will read. I'm reading from the New King James. 
we'll let you get these handouts real quick. <clears throat> We're going to begin with chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, and starting in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. Let me just lay them right here. Came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. Hanani is my best friend, and he came with a report from my homeland. So I asked him, how are my people? How, how is everyone back there? Hanani said, these, these friends of Nehemiah, they said the survivors, in verse 3, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are over there in, in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. I, I find the next verse hard to understand. I, I find it a little hard to relate to. It says, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and I mourned for many days. I, I don't... I don't know if I can totally relate with that. Mourning, weeping, he burst into tears. And my friends, the city of Jerusalem, the condition of the city of Jerusalem is what brought Nehemiah to tears. I submit to you that throughout the story of Nehemiah this week, you look at the city of Jerusalem as a broken and ruined life. Remember, you know of somebody like that. A broken and ruined life. Every time we hear a description of the city of Jerusalem, think of that broken and ruined life, and perhaps it's your own. Nehemiah sees this broken and ruined condition and it breaks his heart. How do we deal? This week I'd like to answer questions and one of them is, how do we deal with a broken and ruined life? What do we do for that person who's in such a condition? How does a broken and ruined life go from ruins to rebuilding and reconstruction and revival. New life in Jesus Christ. How do we get from point A to point B? That's a question I'd like to answer. And we see in the story of Nehemiah a process by which the broken and ruined life can come to be a new life in Jesus Christ. The first thing we see are tears. When is the last time you broke down in tears over ruins in a person's life, whether your own or anybody else's? Nehemiah was there, my friends. He was a God-fearing man. And he broke down in tears. He wept and mourned for Many days, the Bible says. That's the first step. The first step is recognizing that, that life as it is, truly in ruins, and letting it break your heart. Let the Spirit touch your life. Psalm 51 says that the sacrifices of God, what does it say? I think it's verse 12. The sacrifices of God are a, a broken and contrite spirit, that's, that's what he will accept? Okay. Nehemiah becomes aware, and what is his reaction? What is his response? We have a list of things that I put down in your, in your handout, 
that consisted of Nehemiah's response to seeing a broken and ruined life, if you will. His response is weeping, fasting and prayer, patience, as we'll see later on. Patience. He's a patient man. Boldness. He has, he has the bravery to approach the king who may have his head. Just because he approached him, he may have his head. That's how serious the situation is. But Nehemiah is bold and he acts. He's a man of action. I broke down his prayer because he, he it says there that he mourned for many days and he fasted and prayed in verse 4. And in verse 5, we see his prayer. Read with me in his prayer. And perhaps you can write down these four components of Nehemiah's prayer. It would be nice for you to remember these things simply because perhaps someday you would want to pray like Nehemiah prayed. Look at these four components. Verse 5, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with, with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. The prayer I pray for you now, for the children of Israel, your servants. And, and I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them. Though some of you were cast to the farthest part of the heavens, yet will I gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah continues his prayer. Now, these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, I pray. Please. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I like how it says it there. In the sight of this man. As if Artaxerxes is sitting on the throne five feet away. Nehemiah is standing there Silently awaiting the next order. Praying this prayer in his heart. That's what I see. Grant him mercy. Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Four, four interesting things. Verse 5, I think you can see that Nehemiah recognizes the character of God. You can write that down. Nehemiah, first of all, in his prayer, he recognized the character of God. He saw who, what God was like and he, he verbalized it. He verbalized what he understood of God's character. That's the first aspect. The second is that he repented. He repented. And you notice in verse 6 that he didn't just repent for himself. He says... Uh, I confess the sins of the children of Israel against you, both my father's house and I. In the next verse, he says, we. He includes himself here. So there's repentance, confession and repentance. That's the second aspect of Nehemiah's prayer. He repented of his wrongs. Third aspect is he reminded God of his promises. Look at that in verse 8. He says, Lord, remember. And then he tells the Lord what the Lord said before. Lord, remember what you said before. You told us that if we're unfaithful, we're going to be scattered. That's, that's 
the essence of a broken and ruined life, my friends. Have you been there? Have you, has your life been scattered abroad and you need to be brought back to the Lord? Okay. Uh, he says, but Lord, you told us that if we would return to you and, and keep your commandments and do them, even though we're scattered far and wide as if there was no hope of return. You'll bring us back. You'll gather us together to the place you have set before us. Isn't that cool? The fourth aspect is he makes a request. Nehemiah makes a request. Lord, please let your ear be attentive to this prayer. Furthermore, he asks for success. Let your servant prosper, he says in the King James. Grant him mercy. Here is Nehemiah's request. And how often do we come before the Lord and we say, Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Would you please be with me for thus and so? Would you please be with my friends? And these are all good things to pray, my friends. But notice, Nehemiah puts the request down at the tail end of his prayer. What are the four aspects of Nehemiah's prayer? I think they're important. First, he recognizes what? He recognizes God's character. Then he does what? He repents, doesn't he? Repents and confesses. Then he reminds God of what? His promises. How? By the way, how can you remind God of his promises if you don't know what they are? It doesn't work. So, read his promises. Isaiah fifty four seventeen. No weapon that's formed against you will prosper. Uh, Romans 8.28. These are just some of my favorites. Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to them that are the called according to His purpose. Uh, to them that love Him and are the called according to His purpose. Uh, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful and will complete. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a powerful good promise. Anyway, we could go on and on, reminding the Lord of His promises. What was the fourth aspect of His prayer? He then, then He made a request. Chapter 2. This is when Nehemiah comes in direct contact with the city of Jerusalem. We're going to go quickly through this, chapter 2. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when, a, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Remember I said that the king could have his head? Well, guess what? If there was anyone in the king's presence who had a glum look on his face or a look of nervousness, guess what? The first thing suspected was ill will toward the king. Somebody's got a scheme going on, and whoever's got this shifty look on their face is going to lose their head. Nehemiah had never been sad in the presence of the king before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Nehemiah, this powerful man, this this man with incredible intellect, This man with psychological strength that far surpasses any of us here, I'm sure. Panicked. This man felt a pang of fear that went down deep in his heart. He was scared for his very life. And he said to the king, I said to the king, Nehemiah says, may the king live forever. Right away, he's, he's uh, trying to, you know, set the king's mind at ease because the king's going to have his head. Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? This tells me some other things about Nehemiah and the king, that they know each other well. That they have, they've got to have some kind of a a personable relationship. 
between them. A friendship, if you will. Because the king doesn't necessarily, in this culture, the king is not known for asking questions. Take off his head and ask questions later is how they would operate, customarily. Okay? But the king doesn't do that. He actually asks questions first. And then, in answer to his question, Nehemiah does, doesn't say, Oh, it's, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. It's okay. I, just having a bad day. I'll get over it. <laughs> well, if he'd have said that, perhaps there'd have been more question for the king to look for, uh, reason for the king to look for answers. But Nehemiah answers him boldly. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father... You know, he appeals to the king's heart of compassion. So that tells me Artaxerxes is a man of thought. A man who doesn't just whip out the sword. He's actually a thinking man. And he is actually a man of compassion. Because Nehemiah sees that. Otherwise, he wouldn't appeal to his sense of compassion by saying, why wouldn't my heart be sad because the, the city of my, my father's lies in waste? The king said to me in verse 4, you can almost see the, the, the smile of relief on the king's face. Oh, it's not someone to do me any harm. So he says to Nehemiah, what do you request? What's your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Here we see that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. I prayed to the God of heaven. He is asked this question and he answers, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah. And he gives a whole litany of, of things, specifications in this request to the king. The king asked the question. He answered the question. But in that split second, before answering the question, he prayed to the God of heaven. Don't miss that part. It's probably the most important part of their conversation. Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven. <clears throat> okay, we're going to skip down now because he's dealt with all the border people. He got letters from the king. He, remember, he, he asked for several specifics from Artaxerxes. You know, give me letters of recommendation uh, for the governor so they'll put, let me pass by. Give me letters that say I can have materials for building. Uh, he got those. He got everything he requested. So now he's made the journey all the way to Jerusalem. And we see in chapter 2, verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. I, I made a note of this, that it's R&R. Rest and relaxation. He had quite a trip, quite an involved uh, journey. Working with all of his entourage, all the people that were with him, organizing everything, traveling all that distance and talking to all the border governors and, you know, all this political stuff that had to take place. He was tired. He was wiped out. So he took three days of R&R. And then verses 12 through 15, he takes a look at the city. He got up in the middle of the night and didn't tell anybody where he was going. He took just his, his donkey and the, the few men that were with him, and they went in the middle of the night, not telling any of the officials where they were headed, didn't tell them they were going anywhere, and slipped out the gate and took a tour of the city of Jerusalem. You can see on the back of your handout where he might have gone. Okay, It says there that he, he went up in the night and viewed the wall. He, he, uh, he went out through which gate? In verse, verse uh, 13, I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 13, he went out through the valley gate. You can find the valley gate on your handout. He went all the way around the wall. And it says that there wasn't even room at one point for his donkey to walk. Those of you who work with livestock know what, what terrain is okay to take a horse or a donkey through. Okay? And what terrain is not okay for them to go through. You know, a boulder field is not okay 
you know, it might be okay for a goat or something like that, but not, or, you know, if you're walking your dog, you know, the dog can hop from one rock to the next, but you don't take a horse or a donkey through that. And that's what the wall resembled, a boulder field, a jumbled mass. This is a pretty broken and ruined life. Wouldn't you agree? Notice I said it's a broken and ruined life. It lays in ruins. The gates are burned with fire. And it's so bad that Nehemiah can't even bring his animal through it. I want you to understand, no matter how bad, no matter how bruised and broken a life may be, Jesus is the answer. And He is hope for that broken and ruined life. All the way down through, you see uh, Nehemiah, uh, through the story of Nehemiah, you see examples of his leadership. But here in chapter 2, he calls everyone together in verse 17. He says, uh, you see the distress that we're in. You see the condition of this life that we're dealing with. You recognize how terrible. You look inward and you you are overwhelmed by a sense of your own unworthiness. Are you not? At times you, you see in yourself and you realize that this is disgusting. Or <clears throat> maybe with David, you say, I'm, I'm a, nothing but a worm. I'm not dirt. I'm lower than dirt. Nothing but a worm. Have you ever been there? David was there. He, would, he experienced that sense. So, Nehemiah says, you see it. You are aware of it. You realize this condition of this broken and ruined life. Come, let's build it up. Come, let's build, a, let's build this wall so that we may no longer be a reproach. Let's give the devil a black eye. Let's... let's Bring some truth to that scripture where the head of the evil one is crushed. We don't bring truth to that. That's the work of Jesus Christ in the life. I told them of the hand of my God. Here's a testimonial, uh, 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 a session of sharing testimonies. And right now it's Nehemiah sharing his testimony. I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, wow. They were impressed by this. So they said, let's get up and build. So they set their hands to do this good work. This is what I want this week. My friends, I I want to come out of this week with a new desire to get up and build that life, the broken and ruined life. But, but, we see a but here that always seems to happen, never fails as soon as the Lord lays it upon your heart to get up and build. But, comes along. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem heard about it, they laughed at us (laughs) and despised us and said, what do you think you're doing? You think you're going to, are you going to rebel against the king? What do you think you're doing? This is the, the enemy, my friends. This is the enemy and he comes in and he says these sinister little stupid thoughts that we tend to believe and I've believed them over and over in my life. What do you think you're doing? You really think you can rebuild this life? You really think the Lord can do something with this life? Come on. That's... The evil one. That's the enemy. So I answered, Nehemiah says, I answered them. (laughs) I love it. 
I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven, He will prosper us. Therefore we, His servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. That's sort of like Jesus saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. We may meet the tempter with this cry. Look it up. The book Sanctified Life, page 90. We may meet the tempter with the cry, By virtue of the atonement, I claim Christ as my Savior. He is my Savior. I with Him. When the devil tries to whisper in your ear, says, you're too great a sinner for Christ to save. Who are you kidding? Give it up. You're going to blow it tomorrow. Why even try? Your life's not worth living. You've tried and tried and tried and you've left a whole string of, of years of failures and you think you're going to succeed now? You think, you think that, that you can just forget about all the nasty crud you've done in your life and, and the, the Lord can work some miracle and give you a new life in Christ? What do you, who do you think you are? These are lies of the devil. And he is so sinister. He's so subtle with these things. And he, he, he tweaks them and, and fits them to meet your situation so nicely and gets us so discouraged, doesn't he? But we may, like Nehemiah, stand up and answer the evil one and say, you have no right here. You have no heritage here. Get behind me, Satan. I claim Christ as my Savior. Chapter 3. We're going to close with chapter 3 today. But I want to take a unique look at chapter 3. And um, it has to do with uh, the avenues of the soul. Um, All through chapter 3, we see a list of names that I can't even pronounce. And it's so boring. It's like, what in the world can you get out of this chapter in the book of Nehemiah? It's just on and on and on with all these funny names and, and incidental details. It's just, you know, sort of like someone standing by and just recording. Uh, so-and-so is sitting in the middle of the back of the aisle there, and, and so-and-so is sitting in the back three rows over there, and, and uh, so-and-so was speaking today, and... Um, Before that, there was this and there was the other, and it follows with this and that. And it's just boring. But look with me at this chapter, because all through the chapter, we see the names of the gates of Jerusalem. Are we not told that... Well, first, let me ask you this. What is the gate of the city used for? Entering and leaving. Entering and exiting the city. You don't climb over the wall. Well, usually. And uh, that's the point of access. Am I right? If the gates are burned with fire, are the gates standing? If the gates are burned with fire, what condition are the gates? Are they open or shut? It's a gap. It's, It's a gap. It's wide open. And if the gates of your life are burned with fire, who is it that may come and go into your city, your life? The enemy might even come and go as he pleases. Have you ever been to a point where the enemy just seems to come and go as he pleases and you can't even have the slightest bit of resistance? I've been there. I've just 
walked right into temptation and fallen right along with it because it's almost like there's not the slightest bit of resistance. The gates are burned with fire. That's why it's so important for the gates to be rebuilt. Isn't it? We want these gates to be rebuilt. Look at these gates with me. Um, I've got a little chart there. You can, you can fill in, in the little blank beside each gate, you can write this verse. And I'll, I'll give you a verse or two, maybe, for each one of those blanks. And then uh, take some time to go back to those verses and look at these things. I like these gates because they bring to mind certain things that I've seen elsewhere in Scripture. It's kind of cool. Um, the sheep gate is the first one. You know, it begins with the cross. The cross. Who was Jesus? <clears throat> John, here's your first text, John one twenty nine. John said that Jesus was the Lamb of God. There's the sheep gate. Jesus was the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away what? The sin of the world. And Isaiah, there's another verse you can write down in that blank uh, for the sheep gate. Isaiah 53, verse 7. You know, chapter 53 of Isaiah is the whole prophecy of Jesus. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, 7. So there's your two texts, John 1, 29 and Isaiah 53, 7. Next, we come to the fish gate. You know that once we come to the cross and, and see and, and, and we're overwhelmed by the gift, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who took away my sins, what's the next thing I want to do? I want to go out and I want to share. And Jesus actually addressed that and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's all about sharing. That's all about being a witness, a shining light in the world. That's Matthew 4.19. Matthew 4.19 is talking about the fish gate or being fishers of men. The old gate, Jeremiah 6.16. Write it down. Jeremiah 6, verse 16. I'd like to go there for just a moment to this one. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16 says... Turn the next page here. It says... Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for what? Ask for the old ways. The old ways. There's a lot of new stuff in the world today, my friends. There's, there's the new age, of course. There's new uh, theology. There's new uh, forms of music. There's new uh, um, uh, ways to define relationships. There's new everything. Last night at the meeting, uh, the pastor said that the world is changing. Things aren't like they used to be, are they? Jeremiah, through the instruction of the Lord, says, ask for the old paths. Tell me the old, old story. I love to tell the old, old story. And walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Then you will find rest for your souls. The old gate just stands for the old ways. Come back to the old ways. Jeremiah 6.16, the valley gate. The valley gate, you know, we think of the valley of the shadow of death, right? We think of uh, low points in life. But I want to submit to you that it's something more than that. I think the valley gate could represent humility. Humility. Don't you think? Uh, uh, Yes, a low point. If we would humble ourselves and pray. Doesn't First Chronicles 7.14 say that? Or, I'm sorry, Second, Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people will humble 
themselves. Enter the valley and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, the Lord says. Second Chronicles 7.14 Also, you may want to jot down 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Um, 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, and um, you must forgive me because my wife just bought me this Bible for my birthday and I'm still getting used to the, the way the pages turn. It doesn't turn as quickly and easily as my old Bible. Second Chronicles 7.14 and also 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Likewise, you younger... Uh, I'm going to skip down to the second part of verse 5. 1 Peter 5.5 5. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's the valley gate. The refuse gate. Uh, the poop gate. We don't come to church to hear about poop. We don't, we don't hear the preacher talking about poop, do we? Or, or do we? You know what? What is, what is, what is that stuff? I'd just like to dwell for a moment on that. What is that stuff? Do you, do you want to keep that? No. Okay. For real. Um, that's supposed to be flushed and go off to the sewage treatment facility. Am I right? You don't want to keep that stuff. You want nothing to do with it. Look at the text that I have for this. Isaiah 1, verse 16. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. Um, again, I've got to get my pages to cooperate here. <laughs> there we go. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Purge, in other words. Uh, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Stop doing evil, in other words. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. That's what it looks like to flush it, to get rid of the garbage in our lives. You don't want to keep poop around. Okay? You all know that, of course. But how often do we apply it? That's the refuse gate. They brought everything there. That was a stinky gate. That was where all the gray water drained out. I've heard, I've heard lots of things about this from different teachers, you know. They, they dumped the waste out that way. And... Say again? Yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the pool of Siloam was there near that gate. Um, yeah, anyway, important gate. <clears throat> Next, we come to the fountain gate. The fountain gate is uh, the Lord's answer to um, getting rid of the refuse in our life, right? The fountain that cleanses, that purifies, cleans you after getting rid of all that junk. The fountain is so wonderful. John 7.38. John 7.38 that talks about Jesus being uh, a well of water springing into life. Um, Ephesians 5.18 is another text you can write down for the, the fountain gate. Uh, the Spirit just continue. It, it conveys the idea that a fountain... Uh, never ends. It just keeps bubbling up. I think of Mammoth Spring in southern southern Missouri. It's this huge pond, as maybe as big as this tent, maybe not quite as big as this tent. And you look across the surface of the pond, and it's actually bulging because the water, it's a spring. It's a freshwater spring, artesian well. And it's bubbling up and feeding two different rivers. It's really cool. And it never ends. That's like the Spirit of God. It just keeps on coming. Keeps on going. The water gate is next. It goes right along with the fountain gate. Jesus said 
in John 4. You can write this down. John chapter 4, verses 10, verses uh, verses 10, 13, and 14 in John chapter 4. Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. And he said, he said, if you knew uh, who asked you for a drink of water, you would have asked him for a drink of water, and I would have given you water that would satisfy you forever. You would never thirst again. So we see Jesus uh, comparing himself to a fountain. Water. The water of life. Okay? So after the, after the water gate, what do we see? The horse gate. Oh, the horse gate. Do you know that all through Scripture, um, many of the examples we see of horses are in battle? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever sat and watched a horse? Or ridden a horse? I know my friend Bracey has, has broken some horses. He's had a few horses break him too, I understand. Um, <clears throat> the muscles on these things. Incredible muscle. The horse is just, you just get this image of this powerful, uh, deep, rippling, bulging muscles. All natural. And that is so neat. And we think of a horse majestically riding into battle, following the instruction of its rider, not fearing what's in front of it. Well, some horses. And riding into battle. The verse I'd like to leave with you for that is Ephesians 6. You know, you all know the verses in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 19. Ephesians 6, 10 through 19, talks about the armor of God. Battle. We, who are we battling against? Is it? Is, that's right. So, Richard, if, if you and I are having uh, an issue between us, and it's causing us major stress and angst towards each other. Um, are we fighting against each other? Who are we fighting against? We're fighting against the evil one. And the evil one would like to destroy the relationship between me and Richard. The evil one, in the process of destroying this relationship, would like to destroy me and Richard as well. If he can wrap as many people up in this destruction, he's even happier. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, my friends. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. That's our enemy. That's what comes to my mind when I think of a horse. The East Gate. The East Gate is next, and I put down Luke 21.38. Luke 21.38 actually goes so nicely with the theme of this week. Luke chapter 21. Somebody want to read that out loud? Um, Luke chapter 21. Oh, I'm going to have to trade Bibles next time. Verse 38. Somebody, uh, did I say that right? Luke 21. 28. I apologize. Verse 28. Uh, Luke chapter 21 and verse 28. Somebody read that right out loud. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. I love that song. Lift up your heads, redemption draweth nigh. You know the song. Uh, I think of the East Gate. It, you know, it faced the, the sunrise. It was just across the way from the temple. And it represents, in my mind, uh, hope. Something that's coming. The king is coming. And so, <clears throat> the east gate represents the hope we all have as we look forward to the second coming of Christ. Luke twenty one twenty eight. Last of all, we come to, well, not last of all exactly. It's the last in the list. The Mifkad, King James says, the Mifkad gate. The, it translates into inspection. <clears throat> Isn't that fitting? 
Isn't that fitting? We've gone through all these gates and, and finally the king has come. And what happens then? There's a great inspection, isn't there? A great inspection. Jesus described it as separating the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the chaff. And There's a great inspection coming, my friends. And the, the text that you, you can hold on to for that is Hebrews 9.27. And after that, the judgment, Hebrews 9.27 says. Also, 1 Corinthians 3.8 talks about a reward that he has saved up for those who serve him and those who are against him. The inspection gate. And you know what? Chapter 3 ends with a mention of the first one we started with. The sheep gate, doesn't it? Do you see that there in chapter 3? Nehemiah 3 begins and ends with the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I think our whole experience and this whole story of rebuilding and reconstruction of a life begins and ends with Jesus Christ. It begins and ends with uh, falling down at the feet of Christ. It begins and ends with a recognition of what God did at the cross. I want to share with you in closing a couple of interesting quotes that I found. First one from Patriarchs and Prophets, just a sentence. Those who do not want to fall prey to Satan's devices must guard well the avenues of the soul. Those gates, in other words. They must avoid reading, seeing, or hearing that which will suggest impure thoughts. The mind should not be left to wander at random upon every subject that the adversary of souls may suggest. Page 460, Patriarchs and Prophets. Guard well the avenues of the soul. Also in the book Adventist Home, page 401. All should guard the senses. What are they? The eyes, the ears, touch, the mouth. Oh, that's a big one. I'm trying to deal with that. Um, the mouth and, 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 and the nose. Did we cover those five senses? I think we covered them. All should guard the senses, lest Satan gain victory over them. For these are the avenues, the gates of the soul. Philippians 4.7 Philippians 4.7 is my closing appeal to you. Philippians. <laughs> give you time to turn there. See, that's why I chose this Bible, so that uh, you can have time to turn there along with me. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7. And the peace of God. I've already read a couple of quotes to you about guarding the avenues of the soul. Does that seem like a lot of hard work to you? It does to me. It's very daunting. To rebuild those gates is, is an overwhelming task ahead of me. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I can handle it. Here's my benediction. Verse 7, Philippians 4, verse 7. And the peace of God. The peace of who? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. In other words, if you think you have a, a clue how it works, if you think you've got a handle on what the peace of God is, you're getting a handle on the wrong thing. Because it says here very plainly that it passes all understanding. It's big. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? The peace of God will guard your hearts. You don't need to worry about uh, whether or not you can handle it. Because, my friends, you can handle it. Based on who? Your merits? No, based on his merits. 
You can handle it through Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the story of Nehemiah to encourage us, to enlighten us as to your plan for our lives. Help us to cooperate with your plan. Be with each one through the remainder of this day. Go with them as they eat their meal, uh, have conversations, and, and come across lives left and right that are broken and in ruins. Help us together to join with you, take advantage of your power to rebuild these lives, including our own. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.